Well, I'm going to continue unpacking or trying to unpack James's masterclass on church life today, into chapter 4. And I imagine uh, he had spent decades in the belly of the beast that is the local church, and that this letter was sort of like a distillation of what he'd learned. Well, some years ago, the late and much-missed Sankster J. Robson bestrode our lounge like a small, white, fluffy thing. Very difficult to keep a white dog white. If you remember nothing else from today, it's like the carpet. You don't want a white carpet. Well, one Sunday night, we'd just got home, and rather than being greeted by him in first or second gear, you know, look up, woof, look down again, there was this white flash zooming around the house and halfway up the walls. And he had a lot of energy, and he really wanted to play. (laughs) What was going on, we wondered. What had happened to our dog? And then we found the remains of a dark chocolate bar wrapper, which we must have left in an insecure position. Aha, so that's why you are so manically active tonight, little dog. Well, I rung a friend of ours who was a vet and to see how much of an issue it was. And she did her calculations on the other end of the phone and told me that this could well be a fatal dose. Apparently there's something in chocolate, it might be cocoa, I think, that's sort of like a poison to dogs. So when I finally managed to catch Sankster, which took a bit of doing, we went down to the after-hours vet. Now another piece of um, worldly advice Take a lot of money with you if you ever have cause to go to the after-hours vet. We sat next to another Bichon that was bleeding because he'd had a scrap with a large rat. He too was quite pumped. Not sure what the rat status was. Well, Stankster stayed overnight and they force-fed him some icky stuff and he managed to ralph out all the chocolate and he was fine and lived a couple of years longer. Clearly... He loved chocolate, and when he had eaten some, he went as high as a very high object in the sky. But it could have killed him. And the sin that James writes about in chapter 4 is exactly like that. We have a fatal attraction to living life on our own terms or in our own way, with no accountability to anyone, yet if we do that, it can be lethal. And James has some insight to throw in this situation. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it. So you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is for nothing that the Scripture says, God yearns jealously for the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and she will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I want to look first at the first three verses. Interesting to me that James didn't have to identify the particular arguments he was talking about because they had so many. Sound like anyone you know in church? But what is interesting to me is he digs into where they come from. These cravings, as he puts it, that are at war within us. You want something? but you don't have, so you kill for it. Now, I have a confession to make that in my 30-odd years, years in church, I haven't yet had cause to kill anyone. But hey, plenty of time, but I don't want to rule it out prematurely. Have I been hurt and angry with people such that they were near dead to me? Yep, a couple of times. James goes on, that you covet something that you want. You deeply desire it. The best example of coveting that I've ever seen is this guy from Lord of the Rings. He started out on the left and it ended up on the right and it killed him. The history of the church on a global basis and also in individual churches is the battle for power, to put it bluntly. Not terribly edifying, but it's real. A topical example at the moment is the New South Wales Baptist Union, our brothers and sisters over the ditch. They have just had their annual hooey thing, And they've created a mechanism by which pastors and churches that don't hold to a traditional view of marriage will be out. They'll defrock the priests, ministers, that'll be interesting to watch. They'll expel the churches. So much for the freedom of the local Baptist church to figure out its own way. It will split them, it is splitting them. The conservatives, or at least many of them, I think are probably concerned that their churches will lose God's blessing because they are associated with churches or might be associated with churches that do same-sex marriages. Now, in the cold light of day, that is an odd view of God. Does he really judge his people like that? Their God, I think, is a lesser deity than the one we've been singing to this morning. On a local church level, I have lost count of how many senior pastors and associates have had massive falling outs because the associates expected, rightly or wrongly, that one day they would take on the senior role. It's hard to wait. 
if you don't see yourself as a second in command, and it's hard to let go if you've led a congregation for a long time. There's a church I know in which both pastors were wrestling, I think, with their need for significance, both good sorts, but it did not have end happily. James here, I think, is pushing us to hold up a mirror to ourselves. If we are in conflict with someone else, a brother or sister in Christ, what need is driving us? What need is in play for us? I'll try and explain what I mean by need. You and I have a chat, say, and there are multiple levels at which that conversation might play out. We might chat and talk about the weather. And we'll exchange facts about it. Gosh, it's been wet. Gosh, it's been dry. Flip, there's a big flood in Australia. There's a hurricane in the Caribbean, whatever. We're exchanging facts. We're not really being vulnerable to each other. Then we might talk about whether we think it's because of climate change. Okay, now we've got opinion. More vulnerable because this person might disagree with us and might see us as our woke wannabe or a dinosaur, depending on who thinks what in this conversation. Then we plug down a level to our feelings, so it's facts, opinions, feelings. Now, before I decided, came to the conclusion that carbon dioxide buildup was a result of human activity, I got called all sorts of names by my children. I resented the suggestion that I was an idiot or unthinking because I like to think I'm quite intelligent. They offended me. I might share that experience. They've got facts, opinions, feelings, and then we hit needs. Now, if I had a house in South Brighton, and I hope none of you do, I'd be quite concerned about flood risk, insurance, and whether I'd ever be able to sell it. And if I'm totally honest, and I'm really sharing my soul, part of my security is built on the sense that I have some means. Now, to share that is very vulnerable. I might walk into a spiritual left jab like, well, brother, trust in the Lord. Ding. Needs drive conflicts. They're often unseen by the person who's the protagonist or the person with the need in play. Now, the need in play might, in a conflict might be self-justification. I like to think I'm basically a good guy, despite the criticism that I might cop. I was once told in a conflict in a church that I was acting like a lawyer rather than a minister of the gospel. Ouch. That one hurt. Another time, my promotion of the church buying a house to base its weekly ministry activities was apparently coming from my desire to erect a monument to myself. My response to that was if I wanted a monument to myself, I would want something grander than a church ministry house. Thank you very much. I was quite proud of that one. Now, we can't do much about the people on the other side of the argument. 
but we can be brave enough to look at ourselves. Start with the idea, and it's a radical idea, that maybe our motives are not totally pure. Just sit with it. I know it's a surprising suggestion, but let's just go from there. Is my need for significance or self-justification or power or the need to impress my parents or pride or ego or whatever in play for me? Because if there's a conflict going on, chances are that sinful needs are in play on every side. We need to have the courage and the true humility to own our own stuff and address it. To ask ourselves the question, why does this thing matter to me? I'll give you an example. I realized before I came to Apawa that I'd been in Christian leadership roles just about all my time as a Christian since I converted when I was 18. So at that stage, probably about 35 years. On reflection, it struck me, this is odd. This isn't common. And as I unpacked it, I realized that the reason I was attracted to leadership roles was not the lust for power, but it was the need to belong. You see, I rolled into church as a lost boy. I had no connections in the church world particularly. And I saw, I think, that leaders were at the heart of the enterprise. That was where the deeper relational connections tended to be made. And that's what I think I desperately wanted. And I thought if I had those, I would feel that I belonged. Now that need has not gone away. But now that I can see it, it no longer drives me into leadership roles as it once did. I am much freer. And that's a good space for me to be in. I can now lead out of a deeper sense of call rather than attending to my own need. I invite you in the the conflicts or the difficulties or the things that have really stirred up your passions in church life, reflect on those experiences And try the question, what need for you was in play? What need for you was in play? Well then, James gets really stuck into us. Because he says in verse 4, Adulterers! What have you heard? Has someone said something? Be scary. Friendship with the world is enmity or hostility towards God. Now, who here has ever read the prophet Hosea? Old chap in the Bible, long dead. Give it a read. It's not long. Hosea was called by God to marry Gomer, who was a prostitute. This is the Regis Digest version, who was a prostitute, and who kept leaving him to return to the sex trade, and God kept telling Hosea to take her back. Who would be a prophet, eh? God's point was not to emotionally torture Hosea for fun. It was so that Hosea would experience something of God's pain when we, his people, stray away from him. 
It's like sin and the world are sirens, are hot men or hot women calling to us, calling us away from God. He clearly takes sin incredibly personally. He yearns, that's a strong word, isn't it? He yearns for the spirit that he sealed us with when we wander away. God's pain is akin to the pain of a jilted husband or wife. It's that intense. It's the pain of a broken heart. And it seems that the Calvinists are at least partly right that we are all totally sinful. It also seems that how we engage with our wider world is fraught. It's difficult. We should not expect to fit in too easily. We might be sinful, but we are each individually and collectively, us all as a people of God, the beloved of God. God doesn't, despise, decide, God doesn't desire a deep, profound relationship with you or me because we are fundamentally okay or good, because we are not. He profoundly, sacrificially, extravagantly loves us despite us not being okay or good. The humility that, God, that James talks about in verse 6 that God gives us grace for is to know the enormity of our sin alongside the even greater enormity of the love of God for us. His wandering, fickle creations. James sums it up better than I can. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, draw near to God does not mean sort yourself out. It means enter his presence. Just sit at his feet, in his presence. Our false joy may turn to pain as we repent, but ultimately he will lift us up. I heard this stunning testimony a few years ago. It was from a woman in her 30s who had been a real party animal through her 20s. She'd have, had tons of lovers, she'd had lots of drugs, she'd been one of these people who get amped up on pee and party all night and all that kind of thing. And they said to her, she was interviewed, and she, they said, what was your life pre your conversion like? And she said, thrilling. Bit of a surprise to the interviewer. Do you miss it? Sometimes. But now I'm at peace. And that is gold. And I never had that. She gave up something that she liked for something that was better. The basis of a Christian's self-esteem is the love and mercy of God. It's not your own goodness. And I think that's a much better basis. So sink into his loving arms. 
the God who knows your worst but loves and cares for you anyway. Amen. Would the musicians please come back up?